Welcome to Unscriptured. I'm Amy, and together we'll untangle the Bible, breaking it down as we go. My hope is that this podcast will take away some of the anxiety and the fear that we have when we approach Scripture. Through each episode, we will learn some of the background and some of the thought that went into the stories contained in our Bible so that it is no longer intimidating or off-putting to crack open our Bibles and jump right in. In our last episode, we saw the floodwaters recede and the remnant of creation, meaning Noah, his family, and the select creatures on the ark with them, emerge onto dry land once more. The flood was supposed to restore and cleanse creation, but we witnessed how sin and evil still had a hold in the heart of humanity. So today we will see just how the relationship between God and creation will continue post-flood. How does God respond to a people who still seem unwilling to trust that God has their best intentions at heart? Before we get into Genesis chapter 10, uh, just a little note, some background information. Genesis chapter 10 contains what has been called the Table of Nations. It is a genealogical map of the nations descended from Noah and his three sons. Although this long list of names and places seems like a placeholder or even a bridge to the rest of the story, it serves an important theological purpose too. In both Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 9, God blesses creation and commands it to multiply and fill the earth. This list of descendants here in Genesis chapter 10 is a representation of how humanity lived into that divine blessing. The three sons of Noah rapidly engender nations that branched out over the earth. The grouping of the three branches of nations is primarily geographical. The Japhethites are to the north and west of Israel. The Hamites are to the south, but also include Canaan, which perhaps recalls that it was once a province of the Egyptian empire. And the Shemites are to the east. We'll begin with Genesis chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. These are the descendants of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Children were born to them after the flood. The descendants of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The descendants of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togrimah. The descendants of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Katim, and Rodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread. These are the descendants of Japheth in their lands, with their own language, by their families, in their nations. What's to note here in this section is that Japheth's descendants are primarily peoples of Asia Minor and the Mediterranean. We'll pick up with the next branch, the branch of Ham, in Genesis chapter 10, verses 6 through 20. The descendants of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put and Canaan, the descendants of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabtekka, the descendants of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush became the father of Nimrod. He was the first on earth to become a mighty warrior. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. 
The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, and Akkad, all of them in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehobothur, Kala, and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Egypt became the father of Ludim, Anamim, Lahabim, Neftuim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, and Kaphtorim, from which the Philistines come. Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zimmerites, and the Hamathites. Afterwards, the families of the Canaanites spread abroad, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the descendants of Ham, by their families, their languages, their lands, and their nations. The descendants of Ham are primarily peoples of North Africa and Arabia. And we continue with the descendants of Shem in Genesis chapter 10, verses 21 through 32. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The descendants of Shem, Alam, Asher, Arkbashad, Lud, and Aram. The descendants of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Arkbashad became the father of Shalah, and Shalah became the father of Eber. To Eber were born two sons, the name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan became the father of Almodad, Shelef, Hazarmaveth, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the descendants of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Safar, the hill country of the east. These are the descendants of Shem by their families, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So these are the families of Noah's sons, according to their genealogies, in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. The descendants of Shem, therefore, include many peoples in the Near East, which is Western Asia, excluding Canaan. We now transition into Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Generations removed from Noah, we now see in Genesis chapter 11 that 
things have really not worked out the way God intended in recreating after the flood. Unlike Noah, who had a direct connection with God, we see that humanity in Genesis chapter 11 has a much less personal relationship with God. The fact that the divine and humans do not stand in dialogue with one another constitutes one of the most ominous elements of this text. Instead of talking with God, the humans in this story only talk to one another. From their conversations, they pervert the divine intention of creation. God had commanded creation in Genesis chapter 1 and again in Genesis chapter 9 to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. Now, however, we see a desire on the part of humanity to clump together and a refusal to spread and fill the earth as God intended. At our core, humans fear what the future might bring, and that fear in turn breeds deep anxiety and insecurity. In an effort to secure their own future, these people, they decide to build themselves a city and a tower. Ancient cities always had walls, walls to keep people in, but more importantly, to keep others out. In essence, the building project constitutes a bid to secure their own future as a unified community, isolated from the rest of the world. Their actions focus narrowly on the future of the human community, and therefore they place the future of the rest of creation in jeopardy. Let's continue with Genesis chapter 11, verses 5 through 9. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which mortals had built. And the Lord said, Look, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. These verses in Genesis chapter 11 contain God's response to humanity's efforts of providing their own security and of challenging God's creational commands. As in the Garden of Eden story, humans attempt to cross the boundary between human and divine, and they're thrown back permanently into the human world. Humans have come together to build a city with the highest building that they can possibly build, With a touch of irony, scripture makes a point of saying that even to see it, the Lord must descend from his heavenly dwelling. This also shows us that God is not concerned with the building project itself, but rather God is concerned about the possibilities that this unification of humanity could evoke. The unity of peoples with isolationist concerns for self-preservation That could promote any number of projects that would place the rest of creation in jeopardy. God's response to the people's actions is a moment of grace, although it may not seem like it on the surface. God counters their efforts to remain an isolated community by acting in such a way that they have no choice but to obey the command. God confuses the people's language and scatters them across the face of the earth. 
the confusing and the scattering becomes the means through which the creational command to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth will be fulfilled. Human disunity and exile are not God's final wish, however, as the next chapter of Genesis will demonstrate. Whereas the people of Babel sought to make their own name great, God will be the one to make a man named Abram great. Whereas the people of Babel were afraid of being scattered on the earth, the Lord will call Abram and give him a land to call home, a land of Abram's very own. Whereas the people of Babel are cursed with disunity, the Lord blesses not only Abram, but all those who bless him. Let's continue with Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 26. These are the descendants of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Arkpashad, two years after the flood. And Shem lived after the birth of Arkpashad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arkpashad had lived 35 years, he became the father of Shalah, and Arkbashad lived after the birth of Shalah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shalah had lived 30 years, he became the father of Eber. And Shalah lived after the birth of Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he became the father of Peleg, and Eber lived after the birth of Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he became the father of Ru, and Peleg lived after the birth of Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he became the father of Sarug, and Ru lived after the birth of Sarug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarug had lived 30 years, he became the father of Nahor. And Sarug lived after the birth of Nahor 200 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah. And Nahor lived after the birth of Terah 119 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Once again, we have a genealogy which will help us fast forward the narrative from the Tower of Babel to the story of Abram. This genealogy from Shem to Terah, like that of the genealogy from Adam to Noah, ends by branching into three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Abram will be the one to pay attention to as this story unfolds. You see, names in the Bible, they hold special meaning, and Abram's name is no different. Abram means the father is exalted, highlighting Abram's role as father and patriarch of God's chosen people, the Israelites. We'll continue with Genesis chapter 11, verses 27 through 32. Now these are the descendants of Terah. Terah was the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran was the father of Lot. Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his birth, in Ur of the Chaldeans, 
Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. The genealogy of Terah is expanded upon in order to focus in on Abram. Of note in the background details contained in this ancestry is the mention that Sarai was barren and had no child. This is an anticipatory announcement of the central problem of the Abraham narrative, which will come to the foreground in gradual stages after God's promise that Abram will be the father of a great nation in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. We are also told that Terah, his son Abram, and his grandson Lot and their families all set out for the land of Canaan, but before they reached it, they ultimately settled in Haran. With that, let us continue into Genesis chapter 12 with verses 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife Sarai and his brother's son Lot, and all the possessions that they had gathered, and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran, and they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. When they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on by stages toward the Negev. Here at the beginning of Genesis 12, we have the call and blessing of Abram. Like Noah before him, God chooses Abram to be a conduit of blessing to the whole earth. Blessings in scripture are powerful words through which God's promises are made manifest. There is no explanation given as to why God chooses Abram. Rather, these extraordinary promises come like a bolt from the blue, an act of God's grace alone. We can gather, though, from Abram's response why God might have chosen him. He displays righteousness and faithfulness as he simply listens to God and goes just as the Lord tells him. At the ripe old age of 75 years, Abram leaves his home and everything he knows and begins his journey to the land which God has promised him. Of interesting note here is that God promises Abram three things. 
land, offspring, and blessing. These three promises constitute a reversal of some of the curses on Adam and Eve from Genesis chapter 3. Those curses were exile, pain in childbirth, and uncooperative soil. This tie to Adam and also the more subtle connections to Noah cue us in that God is going to do something new once more, something that will involve not only Abram, but all of creation as well. Let's continue the story with Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to reside there as an alien, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know well that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me and they will let you live. Say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared on your account. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful When the officials of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female slaves, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and be gone. And Pharaoh gave his men orders concerning him, and they set him on the way with his wife and all that he had. No sooner has Abram been promised the land and taken his tour of it than the promise is thrown into great danger. We're told that there is a famine in the land and that Abram and his family must go to Egypt in order to survive. Not only is the promise of land threatened, but the promise of a great nation coming from Abram and his descendants is also placed in jeopardy in this story. Things become even more dicey when Abram and Sarai get to Egypt. Abram recognizes that his wife is beautiful and that she will no doubt attract the attention of Pharaoh. So Abram cooks up a half-truth and decides to tell Pharaoh that Sarai is his sister. It's not an outright lie, since Sarai is technically Abram's half-sister. But there's a problem with this half-truth. Pharaoh believes Abram, and because of that takes Sarai into his own household, meaning that he took her to be part of his harem. The blessing and the promise of Abram's numerous descendants is placed in serious jeopardy. But God steps in, bringing plagues on Pharaoh's household. This is a bit of foreshadowing to the Exodus story, which will come later. While the plagues in the Exodus story will be brought about because of Pharaoh's actions, here in Genesis, it's because of Abram's actions that the plagues come about. Abram brings a curse rather than a blessing upon the nations in this story. In his very first contact with outsiders, Abram fails in his response to the call of God. Also intriguing is Pharaoh's response upon discovering that Abram's lie has brought about the suffering in his house. 
Pharaoh asks Abram the same question that God asked Adam and Eve after they ate the forbidden fruit, and also Cain after he murdered his brother. What have you done? Similarly, Pharaoh sends Abram and Sarai away from his kingdom, just like God banishing Adam and Eve from the garden and sending Cain away as well. Abram and Sarai are sent out from Egypt abruptly and shamefully. Yet Pharaoh exhibits a remarkably generous spirit, acting in a more grace-filled way than we would anticipate. Pharaoh not only lets Abram off the hook, but also lets him keep all the possessions he had accumulated because of the ruse. Although it appeared that the blessings and the promises of God would not have a chance to come to fruition, We end this chapter, Genesis chapter 12, we end it with some hope. Abram and Sarai are spared, and there is space for the promises to come to fulfillment. In our next episode, we will continue the story of Abram, and we will see how the promises are continually put in jeopardy, and yet somehow God makes a way for hope and blessing to flourish. We'll catch you next time on Unscriptured. The sources which went into making this episode possible are the New Interpreter's Bible Commentary, the HarperCollins Study Bible, and the Jewish Study Bible. For more details on how those sources helped shape this podcast, I encourage you to visit my website, www.unscriptured.com. Dot wix, W-I-X, dot com slash Bible study.